Good morning, church family. It's good to see each of you here today. Thanks for joining us for worship. Let's jump right in. Today we're talking about in our Names of God series, Jehovah Kadesh, the God of holiness. We, in the passage my friend Fred wrote just, read just a moment ago, we heard that God is the one who sanctifies Israel. Let me read it for you one more time. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Friends, we're going to come back to this verse at the end because believe it or not, we're still in the process of seeing this fulfilled. As we begin, let's pray together, shall we? Today, Lord Jesus, we, your people, have gathered in your house to hear from you, to engage with you, to praise your name. We've done that already, Lord. Now, as we open your word, let it speak boldly into our lives. Shake us, Father God, from what's comfortable and help us to find who you are calling us to be. Don't let us remain satisfied with where we've always been when you're calling us to something more. Guide us through this time we'll spend together today, Father. And for those who need to do something about what they hear, for those who you have already designated to respond at the end of this service, begin moving in their hearts even now. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, friends, here's what we might observe about God's holiness. It is his core attribute. When we say God is holy, it is redundant. And yet, one of the problems that we have with God's holiness is that it's his core attribute. It's so quintessentially him, it's easy to forget about. It's easy to take for granted and not pay much attention to it. It's sort of like the route that I take going back and forth between here and my home. You know, that route usually brings me down Midkiff. And I don't know if you drive where Midkiff and Wadley meet, but this week they've been doing traffic work there. And God bless them. I want the roads to be smooth and, and right, so I'm not complaining about that. But it caused me to rethink my route. And I realized something. I realized something. Every day I go that way, I pass H-E-B. I never think about it unless I'm hungry or I've been commissioned on a purposeful journey. I want us to think about that because it could be that we just go on autopilot and we never even notice that God is holy. And yet God's holiness, it ought to mean something to us. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it because this core essence of who God is, this essential attribute that is God's central feature. It is the essence of what should be true of us as well. Let's start here. What does it mean to say God is holy? What does it mean to say that? Well, it, it's, it means two things, at least two things. Let's start here. What it means to say God is holy is, first of all, God is unique. God has a unique capacity. God's uniqueness means there is none like him. He is wholly other than everything and everyone else. He has no parallel. His immutability means that he doesn't change. He doesn't morph. He doesn't shift. We see that and we proclaim this is God's most majestic attribute. So when we say God is holy, we acknowledge what is true 
but we also acknowledge that he is completely other in his uniqueness from anything we see. Now, when we see this in Scripture, we see it over and over again. You heard Jeff read from it this morning at the start of our service from Revelation 4. When the angels gather around him, what is the attribute they sing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 6, when we see God high and lifted up, Isaiah observes him sitting on the throne. What is it that the angels say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That doesn't just mean that he's high and exalted, although it means that too. It doesn't just mean that smoke fills the temple, although that means that too. It doesn't mean that the name of God's holiness shakes the building, although it means that too. It means that God is completely different in every wise to how we are, except one. We bear his image. Now, is that something we pull down on ourselves? No. It's something that he reached down and implanted upon us. God's uniqueness. It's an amazing thing that he has done. So our very life is a reflection of the holiness of God and the uniqueness that he alone bears. Here's the second thing that it means. God is absolutely pure. His absolute purity means that he's untouched and unstained by the evil in the world that we live in. He is not a participant in it in any wise. In James 1.13, it says, the Bible says he can't be tempted. His holiness cannot and indeed will not be tolerated. This is different than other religions we might find around the world. Our God is uniquely and singularly pure. God's perfection should drive us too. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, the word of the Lord says, Be holy as I am holy. Now for us, immediately we recoil from that and we go, Hey, what, God, what are you asking of me? I can't get there. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't reach up to that point. We shouldn't aspire to that. We shouldn't look for the way to find our way to that holiness. Let's move on because the second part is the one that's going to change things for some of you. God is the source of holiness. It changes everything it touches. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8, this is what the word of the Lord says. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, I know that before you came to church today, it's likely that you were reading Leviticus, weren't you? Ah, uh, yeah, some of you don't know that book very well, and it's okay, but it's unlikely that you were spending much time in it unless you're in a reading plan. It is a book that speaks to how to govern the holy nation of Israel. What are they supposed to eat? What are they supposed to wear? How are they supposed to get married? Legal issues, transactional issues, issues related to, to, to welfare and law. It's a book that is very technical in its nature, except for chapters 17 to 20. Chapter 17 to 20, right in the smack middle of the book, it talks about the holiness of God and how that should change us. At the end of that section is verse 8. I am the Lord God who sanctifies you. And then he goes on and he talks about the things that will be used in the temple. Those things are considered sacred too. Here's what it means. It means God 
God's holiness changes things. It changes things. If you read through Leviticus and on it in Numbers and Deuteronomy, here's what you'll see. There are special robes that are made. There are special cups that are made. There are special dishes, even special breads. And it's an amazing thing to see how God designates things. And what is it then, what is it that makes those things so holy? Is it the materials they are comprised of? Is the silver itself holy? Is the essence of the the bread components holy? No, what makes them holy is being in the presence of God, being connected to him. The most obvious example of a thing that is endued with holiness is the Ark of the Covenant. Now I'm just going to pause here and say, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great movie. If you don't think so, you're not an American. Let's just get that out of the way right now, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that movie, the story is told of Indiana Jones looking for the Ark of the Covenant, right? You've seen the movie, no doubt. And why is he looking for it? Because it is endued with unique powers. Those powers mean that whatever army carries it before them is undefeatable. That's why the Nazis were looking. It's a World War II movie. The Nazis are looking for it. Indiana Jones is trying to beat them to it. It's a great story. If you haven't seen it, go home and watch it this afternoon. Uh, But it is a story that talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And what happens at the end? They discount the holiness of the Ark, and they pay a heavy price for it, don't they? They don't regard it as sacred. It's sort of like the story that we find in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 5. So the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence and power. And the Israelite army, they decide that whether God commissioned this fight or not, they were going to carry that ark ahead of them and they were going to go fight the Philistines. So they march out with the ark in front of them and they think, man, we are definitely going to win this fight and they wind up outside of God's will, outside of God's purposes and guess what? Not only do they lose the battle, they lose the ark too. The Philistines take it home with them. And now they've marched home with the ark and they're not sure what to do with it. They know it's a holy thing but they're not quite sure what to do with it. So what do they think? They think, Let's put it in the most special place we have. We'll put it in the temple to our God. Our God is called Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, Dagon. So they march it into Dagon's temple and they plop it down and then they go home for the night. Now Dagon is not something that we spend a lot of time talking about today. It's because he's a false god. Let's begin there. He's a false god. But in essence, Dagon is a fish god. Fish head, man body. That's how he was framed and how he's depicted in history. So when they come in the next morning, they expect to see things as they left them the night before. When they come in the next morning, they find instead the statue of Dagon, that was their idol, laying down, face down, before the ark. Huh. Now isn't that unusual? Well, there must have been an earthquake none of us felt. So we'll stand him back up on his feet, and then things will go back to normal. When they come back the next morning, they find the statue of Dagon down on his face again, but this time his arms are broken off, as if God is saying, he's powerless against me. Powerless. Understand this. They get worried, and they decide that they don't want that in the temple of their God anymore, so they move it to a house. Immediately, sickness descends on that house, as if God is defending his own holiness, because that's what God does. He's not one to be trifled with. 
moving into a home and the, the people get sick and immediately tumors begin to break out across all of the people of the, the region and they find themselves sick and wondering what in the world is going on. So they decide the best thing we can do is get rid of this thing that is a marker of God's holiness. We'll send it away. They load it on an ark. They make arrangements. Uh, they load the ark on a cart. They make arrangements with the Israelites and they send it away. Can I tell you, friends, God's holiness changes things. Was it the gold of the ark that made it so valuable? What is it, wood? Was it the contents? Well, I would submit to you, yes, all those things are true, but what makes it really powerful is God's holiness that is imbued within it. Now, we've said God stamped his holiness on that ark, and we're right. But let's be clear, God's holiness changes people, too. God's holiness changes people. It's not just things like the ark that God's holiness touches. It's people. Go to Acts chapter 2 and you'll find an example of what I mean. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, You'll receive the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. This is what Jesus had said. In Acts chapter 2, it happens like a muddy rushing wind. It comes through. And let me tell you, friends, if you want to talk about a moment that changes history, that changes our reality today, it is Acts chapter 2. Because it means God's holiness doesn't live there, wherever the ark is anymore. Now, because of the work of Jesus Christ, for every believer, get this, for every believer, it lives here. And that brings me back to Ezekiel 37. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is within their midst forevermore. For those in Christ, the holiness of God now resides within you. Holy Moses, that changes things, doesn't it? It means that my life is no longer what it was. Now, now sure, sure, I was stamped with God's image when I was created, but now because of Jesus, now because of Jesus, that's not my only reality. My new reality is that Jesus living within me completes the picture. I was made to be like him, and now because of Jesus, I can be. This, friends, is the meaning of God's holiness. So let's keep going. Where then does this show up? Do you have some case studies, Darren, something that you can do? Oh, yes, indeed, we do. The most obvious of them is the Apostle Paul. When we meet Paul in Acts chapter 7, he is a murderer. When we see Paul meeting Jesus in Acts chapter 8 and 9, we find him encountering the risen Savior in all of his glory. And when we find Paul arriving in Acts 13 ready to serve the Lord, he is a different and changed man, all because the holiness of God has changed him. He's not the only one. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets up with a lady with a shady past, one who has done things she wished she could forget. Now, now, she encounters Jesus, and he changes her reality. She is a life changed by the holiness of God. Likewise, for the woman in four chapters later, John chapter 8, caught in the very act of adultery, she is dragged out as she is in front of Jesus Christ, and there Jesus says, 
Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is a life changed by the holiness of God. Zacchaeus in Luke 19, a swindler if ever there was one, a thief, a crook of the first order, probably had some mob ties somewhere back in there. And yet, it is he that Jesus comes to the tree and says, it's important that I go to your house today. Friends, I want you to see this is what happens when the power of God's holiness touches your life. Well, those were a long time ago, Darren. You got somebody more recent? Well, I could tell you my own story, but I'd rather tell you about my favorite movie, one of them anyway, movie Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini, a guy from Torrance, California. He was a world-class athlete. Let's start there. He was a decorated high school and college runner and earned a spot on the 1936 U.S. team to go to Berlin for the Olympics. There he ran in front of Adolf Hitler and all the rest of the Nazis, ran with Jesse Owens, but his path changed five years later. With war on the horizon in September of 1941, he realized he would either be drafted or he could choose a military route, so he chose. He joined the U.S. Army Air Force, or what we now call the Air Force. He was sent from Torrance, California to Houston, and then, get this, to Midland, Texas for flight training. He was flying the B-24 Liberator in May of 1943 when it had engine trouble. The plane went down about 850 miles from Oahu. Eight of the 11 crew members were killed. Louis and the remaining crew spent 33 days adrift. They subsisted on rainwater, raw fish, and birds that were unfortunate enough to land on their raft. Finally, they were captured by the Japanese forces and sent to the Japanese atolls to the Tawara POW camp, where Louis became the target of the lead guard, Motoshiro Wanatabi also known as the bird. He was the lead guard and took great pleasure in abusing Louis. Finally, after more than two years, Louis and his, his, his compadres were released. He returned home, but a changed man. He drank heavily. He was consumed with nightmares and bitterness. He was drowning on dry land until a life-transforming event took place. In the summer of 1949, a young evangelist named Billy Graham brought a crusade to Los Angeles. At the invitation of a friend, Louis went. He didn't go to encounter the life-changing power of God's holiness, but God brought him there for that purpose just the same. He was transformed, my friends. The bitterness fell away from him. The hard-heartedness that he once knew Changed so much so that Dr. Graham and his, 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 uh, his, uh, his co-workers invited Louis to come and share his story over and over again. His transformation was so radical that when Japan hosted the Winter Games in 2002, they called Louis and asked him to run the leg near the prison camp he'd been incarcerated in. At his request, word was sent to the bird 
to meet so that Louis might offer his forgiveness. Here we see the contrast, friends, between a life changed by the gospel and a life that has not been transformed. Louis, transitioned, no longer shackled by the bitterness, was ready to offer forgiveness. The bird, who simply had gotten older, refused the meeting and died before it could be scheduled a second time. This, friends, is what God's holiness looks like when we let it run amok in our lives. So now let us move on to the last part. What does God's holiness mean for us today? What does it look like? I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. The book of Colossians is a, a really fabulous book written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Greeks who had no idea of what it meant to be a God-fearer, no idea what it meant to be a Christ follower, no idea what it meant to trust God and walk with him, no idea what it meant to encounter God's holiness. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to them. And he writes to them on an elementary level. I'm so glad he did. Perhaps the Lord knew I wasn't very bright, and I would need somebody to explain it slowly to me. That's what the Apostle Paul does in chapter 3, the first four verses of that chapter. Let me read it aloud to you. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh, friends, this calls us to action. Because I've been raised with Christ, I'm called to be changed. What does it mean? It means God's holiness means my life must be changed. It must be changed. I can no longer go on and just say it's no big deal. God's holiness means my life must be changed. I can't just walk on as if it's not a big deal anymore. My life must be changed. What's happened is so transformative that it, it just falls on me. God's holiness means my life has to be changed. Got a great example of that this week. A friend of ours who works here with us, he recently got a 1967 Camaro. Now, if you know me at all, you know my appreciation for muscle cars and cars in general, but especially late 60s muscle cars. He knew I would be excited about it, and so he let me know that it was out there. <coughs> and indeed, I spent more time than I probably should have walking around and admiring it. He asked me, Darren, would you like me to start it? And immediately I thought this, my wife would like it better quiet. No motor. But yes, I came for the whole smash. I want to hear it run. So I got in, he got in and run, you hear that lope run, that thing just lope along and oh man, it just sounded glorious. Music to my ears. And I also noticed something else. There was a gas exhaust smell that to me smells like my dad's cologne. That's what he smelled like almost every night when he came home. 
That's what it smelled like in the shop that I grew up in. And so it's funny how your, your sense of smell has some capacity to awaken memories that you'd forgotten, right? And so I'm standing there just admiring. I know they're going, he's crazy standing behind the car like that. He's getting all stinky. And indeed, they were right. But I didn't mind. I walked along and watched as he drove away, and then I went back inside and went back to work. But I noticed something. I noticed something. This is the point of the story. I noticed that I'd brought that exhaust smell with me. It was clinging to my clothes and maybe even in my hair. It was clinging to me. And it caused me to say this. If somebody came into this office to talk to me about something deep and spiritual, would they be put off by the smell of exhaust in the room? I don't know. But I know this. They wouldn't be able to avoid it because it would be there. It caused me to think about 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul talks about how we carry the aroma of Christ's resurrection on us. We carry the smell of it. I wonder what smell you're carrying around. The smell of God's holiness or the smell of your own humanity. If we're to take Colossians 3.1 seriously, then we will admit my life must be changed. I cannot stay where I am. I must continually pursue Christ and ask him to continue to change my life. Here's another element to it. God's holiness compels me to give myself fully to it. No half measures, no games, no half-baked efforts, no half-hearted tries. If I believe God's holiness means anything, then I must admit that it means everything. I must give myself to it. I cannot believe that God is holy, that he sent Christ to die for me, that he gave the Holy Spirit to indwell me and blow it off like it's no big deal. No, my Father came in the person of Jesus Christ. My Father lives within me in the person of the Holy Spirit for the very purpose of recognizing that I have a purpose. God's holiness means my life has a purpose. It is to be like him. Nothing more, nothing less. You see, God stamped me with his image physically when I was created. And now, because of Christ, he has stamped me again spiritually, make me like him spiritually. To see my life with purpose, then, means I recognize I'm headed somewhere. I'm on my way. So I must recognize that I must choose to let my Father be expressed in me. I must choose his holiness. I can't let it be a part piece of the furniture. I can't let it be something I just whiz by. It needs to be something that changes me from the inside out. Today, I want to ask you, what about you? What does God's holiness mean in your life? Anything or everything? My prayer is this, that you'll understand the reason God made you, what he had in mind when he shaped you, when he fashioned you, when he formed you, was for you to be not just physically in his image, but spiritually too. And the only way you can get there is to let the holiness of God be everything for you. God is holy. We acknowledge that. 
But is he holy in your life? My prayer is that he is. But maybe you're recognizing, no, he's not, Darren, and I don't even know how to make him that way. Well, here's how you start. You invite Jesus to be the Lord and master of your life. You invite him in, and you say, Jesus, come into my life. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to trade with you, but I know that this is why you came. You gave your life to buy mine. Invite him in and let him take leadership and lordship over your life. Okay, what do I do after that, Darren? Well, the next step is baptism. It's the first step of Christian obedience. If you've been, ever been baptized, <coughs> okay. come down here and let's talk about how we can get that done for you. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray for someone who's struggling or for yourself. These are not just steps. They're a place that you can bring burdens and leave them. Today is your day to do exactly that. What will you do with it? Pray with me, won't you? I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, for your holiness. Your holiness means that you stand above the fray, that everything is under you, and that your timelessness means I can anchor myself to you <laughs> when the rest of the world is going crazy. Today, Lord, it's my prayer that we would be reminded of your holiness and that we would look in the mirror spiritually and recognize where you're calling for repentance, change, a new direction. We're not promised another day to get it right, so Lord, help us do it now, right here, today. I pray, Father God, we would do exactly what this song we're about to sing says. Turn our eyes on you. Will you meet with us in this invitation time, Lord Jesus? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's your chance, my friends. What will you do with this moment of decision? My prayer is that you will respond to him. Stand and sing as you come.